And we are live with our 101st episode of Absolute Absec. I'm Ken Johnson at CK Tricky on the Twitters, joined by my co host Seth Law at Seth Law on Twitter. Seth, say hi. On the Twitters. Seth, on yeah, Twitters. hi. I'm Seth, apparently. Um, hey, uh, yeah. Allegedly, you screwed me up. You changed your intro, and now I can't talk at all. <laughs> Welcome to a super uh, special edition of our podcast, number one hundred and one. Uh, today, we're going to be joined by Ken and Mike uh, to talk all things cloud. I guess, right? I think that's I, I, I think that's the plan, right? I, I joined <laughs> late, so apparently, I'm I'm out of it. As far as announcements go, um, I did want to mention that we consolidated the courses for Black Hat. Uh, so there's only going to be one virtual course. Let's uh, just make it easier. There are still spots available. So if anybody's interested in um, next level bug hunting is what we're calling it. Uh, but it's basically secure code review, but with an offensive bent. So we won't be digging quite into all of the defensive stuff that Ken and I do on a daily basis, but it will be more of strictly bug hunting, how to find bugs, especially kind of RCAs, other things like that. So please join if you can. Um, otherwise, I'm trying to think what else is going on. Uh, the, um, the Midsummer Night's Con, uh, the dates have, have changed based on some speaker availability. Uh, so watch for that. It will still be in a couple of weeks uh, once we confirm with all the speakers the new date. And um, we're looking at about four hours, one night. Um, it'll still be in the middle of the summer. It will not be on Midsummer's Night. But uh, watch this space. Uh, watch Logic Hill or Stefan as well. And we'll, we'll get it promoted as soon as we've got everything in place and uh, ready to go. Um, Ken, is there anything else that's on the top of your mind as far as announcements or stuff that we need to cover? Uh, I don't think so. I think you covered all of it. Um, I know July. Did you mention July twelfth going on the on the? Uh, oh no, I did not. What is it? Shift left. Oh, Dev slop. What do we? Dev slop. Dev slop. Thank you. Dev slop podcast. Um, I think we're still in the era of whether we're going to talk about secure code review or uh, unit testing or both. Uh, but yeah, so that's July 12th, a Sunday, I believe. So mm -hmm. stay tuned for more information on that. Yeah. But yeah, I, think that's, I, I, I mean, that's all the announcements for today. Um, we're super excited to have Mike and Ken back on. Um, Ken's a regular, like, uh, I, don't, I don't know, what, peanut gallery. Yeah, troll in, in Slack for us. So, so it'll be good to have him on the show today. Mike, I don't know what Mike does anymore. You know, Nobody knows. Yeah. Meetings. Meetings, PowerPoint, yes. spreadsheets. Uh, yeah. That's about right, right? You you know, you got done with a technical role, and now you're just into, you know, yeah. Spreadsheets. Spreadsheets. I know how to do a pivot table. I know how to do a pivot table or two. Oh, okay. Sweet, sweet. Some macro so magic. VLOOKUPs. You don't know about VLOOKUPs. <laughs> Boom. If you don't know about VLOOKUPs, you don't know what's going on. You don't know the state of Excel wizardry. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, we've uh, Ken and Mike have both been on the show before, right? Um, but, uh, like, I don't know. No. Other Ken, right? I, I, I don't know how I'm going like, to yeah. do this today, right? It's okay. Um, that's okay. The better Ken, Toller. The, 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 the Toller. I'm the, I'm the one in the black shirt. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> as opposed to the red shirt. 
Yeah, I'm not we're very checkers, checkers today. <laughs> Is Seth having a senior moment? Because I'm wearing dark also. I don't know what's going on. Apparently, right? I was going to wear my <laughs> DEFCON is canceled shirt, but then, yeah. Do you have one but of then those? We, then we coordinated I, to make sure we're matching. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to match with Mike. He was texting me earlier, you know, film left out. Yeah. So. Red and white is the color today. Yeah. yeah. No, I did get a DEFCON is canceled shirt, right? Like it's one of the organizers or whatever. They sent one across. So I'll have to wear it at a, a different week since it is. And, and uh, it's not necessarily canceled. It's just virtual like everything else. But but I did want to go back to it. Actually, Ken and Mike, this is my first question for you, right? All these virtual yeah. events that are going on, right? Did you hear me talking about it last week? Um, I'm having a hard time really like, number one, getting excited about most of the virtual events, right? Because yeah. there are so many of them. And then number two, actually tracking the stuff that that's good because there is so much coming at me. Um, so number one, what is it that you've been watching recently? What have you? What is it that you found interesting? And then number two, like how are you discovering it and curating it? Right? Those are those are the two questions I've got. And we'll have Mike if you want to go first on that. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't actually watch too many conference talks. I really enjoy going to conferences because I feel like you can actually dive into the content and then you get to talk to folks there about it more. Um, and Ken and I kind of went on a run last year doing a bunch of conferences doing our. Uh, cloud security talk. Um, but actually, I'm old school and I mostly get my news from newsletters. So weekly, okay. I get about 10 different newsletters from security, tech, cloud, AI. And I just pretty much my laptop is dedicated to running Chrome only because I have about 50 tabs open. Um, <laughs> but that's all I get most of my news. But I agree with you. I'm not super excited about doing online conferences. Like I'll, I'll listen to uh, to some talks, but like actually speaking there is not nearly as I think fun as it is in person. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I sort of agree. I mean, I still get excited about the virtual content. Like, um, one of the, we obviously had the IBM conference and the red hat conference that, uh, I attended online. And I think the biggest problem is like you said, engaging with the speaker, uh, and engaging with the audience and then how the audience uses the chat and how the audience uses, you know, different components of it. So people are in and out, they're having other conversations or they're asking questions that may not be getting answered. So like moderating that is always really weird. So uh, what I've tried to start to do is watch them after the fact, but then maybe they're not, they don't post all the talks or, you know, it's just like a really awkward situation. Uh, I think it's the engagement aspect we really have to work on, like how we how we involve the audience, because that's what's missing. It's almost like a talking head. And when you get to that Q&A, you know, do you type in the, the question and answer? Or do you feel them beforehand? And you almost feel like the questions that are getting answered are curated and it's less of that on the spot for the speaker. So yeah. I miss I miss that part of the the conference world right now is the ability for people to ask questions, engage the, the sort of the, uh, you know, after the talk questions where people come up and, and are able to chat with the speaker. I think those are the areas where like that engagement aspect we really need to, to work on for virtual conferences. And that's what I miss. Yeah. It's the, it's like the hallway con, right? The, mm -hmm. that, that happens like the, in between attendees, um, and then also like with the speakers, is there, you know, is there not necessarily up there? I, I don't know. Like I, I have a hard time because we've done virtual trainings for years, right? 
And it, it's never been my favorite thing as an instructor, exactly for the reasons that you're saying. But number one, um, people get, I, I mean, they're just bogged down in their day-to-day, -day, right? And the fact that they're at their desk means they're, they're probably not paying attention like they normally would. And I think we have the same issue with the virtual cons. You know, it's, it's easy to just be like, oh, it'll be on YouTube later. I'll just stream it and just kind of put it in the background and not necessarily worry about it, right? Um, and then number two, the engagement factor, right? I, like I feel like with the podcast or like this kind of a format where we've got, you know, somebody can kind of watch the questions as they come in and answer them. And, you know, we don't filter that or try to do any sort of, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I guess if somebody was really being a troll and we'd boot them or something like that, but you know, up to this point, you know, Ken, Ken, you're the worst that we've got. So yeah, that's, you know, <laughs> we just let you, you let you know. To yeah, exactly. <laughs> All you have to do to shut me up is post my question on the, actually you, know, you always have line. good questions. Yeah. <laughs> you actually always have really legitimate, like good questions. So, well, for every 10 crappy questions, there's one good one. <laughs> yeah, we just don't remember the one, the good ones that actually yeah, yeah. for our conversation, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's a conference on Monday that, uh, speaking of cloud security, it looks really good, which is Ford CloudSec from Scott Piper and some other folks. It was supposed to be around Reinforce, the same time as Reinforce, but now it's all virtual. So, do you know the name of it? Ford Forward CloudSec. So it's like you're getting an email from your grandmother uh, with a terrible <laughs> cartoon, but then CloudSec. Yeah. Yeah. The chain emails. All right. I found yeah. I'm gonna put a link in here to everyone. Yeah, that looks really good. They have a bunch of they have a bunch of really good uh speakers. Um not us. We lost Mike's audio whenever he <laughs> was talking audio about cut out for a second. Yeah. Oh. Right as he was saying, I'm not good enough for this conference. And, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I said the opposite. Yeah. Okay. Opposite. Yeah. Yeah, it looks really good though. The talks look good. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I think that's part of what we've been missing is kind of the curated content like that, right? I, I remember when Scott came out and announced that initially because it was before COVID hit and like it looked like it was going to be a good alternate, like you were saying, Mike. So it should be an interesting one to to attend. Um, There's also. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. I was just I was just going to say, you know, a lot of times the the amount of money you put into attending a conference, you sort of want to get your money's worth with the freebies. It's almost like ah, if I get to it, I get to it, you know. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, if I'm monitoring it in the corner of my, you know, and something cool pops up, then, hey, it was worth it because I didn't pay anything yeah. for it. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know if there's a, there, there's a solution to it. Um, I, you know, until we get back to in-person stuff, uh, it's definitely an area that I'm missing right now, you know, after a few months of not traveling and, you know, I think the, the well, the last one that I hit was B-Side San Francisco. So it was right there at the end of February around RSA. And there was a lot of people that bailed out even then. Um, yeah. Anyway, it's just a, you know, it, it feels unfortunate that, there is so many good speakers that are out there and I know there's good content being created, but I'm having a hard time like being super engaged and interested in it. So speaking of forward cloud sec though, like are there specific talks that you're interested in people that are speaking? Uh, what is it that that's got you excited about that one? I mean, when I looked through the schedule, pretty much everything looked pretty interesting. Cause it's all, they wanted to make it pretty tech focused. 
Um, so every topic I think is, is pretty interesting. And Scott Piper, if you're familiar with him, I know you all, but you all are, but he's um, very much defense focused. So it's not just like, how do you hack the cloud kind of thing? Um, so I think it's pretty interesting to, to have kind of people talking about enterprise cloud security and ways to automate that. Um, so he's been on the show before. Yeah. 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 Um, so I think pretty much everything looks really interesting. I'm, I'll try to watch every single talk. The one, the talk that sticks out to me is the one that is the closest to the name of our talk, which is the build cl building cloud security automation at scale. <laughs> and uh, that one is we're not all saying about... They, we're not saying they stole the talk. <laughs> yeah, we're, not, we're, not, we're not saying we're not they stole saying it. That. The, People the are saying looks... that. We're not saying that. <laughs> yeah. It might be out like, there, but it, it yeah. wasn't you guys. Yeah. No. Yeah. You know what? By the way, speaking of that, I rewatched your talk because I mean, obviously we, so we, Seth and I were there for when you guys gave it at, at Def ops days, the shirt you're wearing, Mike, but like uh, I rewatched it and I just, the one thing I couldn't understand is why you didn't go harder on data scientists. Why didn't you go harder? <laughs> you were so uh, polite. You were so overly polite. I think I didn't yeah. want to get hit by like a big book, a textbook that's all about machine learning. So, you know, <laughs> Put another way, why don't you shit on an entire field worse than you did? <laughs> yeah. I, we're we're going to give you that opportunity today. You know, <laughs> you know they, you to take <laughs> they, say, they say read the room, right? And that's the problem with those virtual talks. Yeah. You can't read the room. So. See, it all depends. I ask people, you know, who's a data scientist, and if it's like one hand, I'll shit on them because I can take one person on one on one, but if it's like four or five people, I can't fight four or five people, you know? <laughs> Yeah. So even if they are data scientists, I can't, I can't take on so, that many so, people. So what you're saying is you perform a, a mini threat model in the room. Exactly. Right? Yes. Yeah. Decide yeah. on whether or it's, not. Uh, okay. Yeah. It sounds like, it sounds like you need that. to be doing some of that MMA training, uh, yeah. Mike, before we go into the next, next venue. Yeah. Then I'll really let loose. You got to crazy right. kick yeah. a data scientist. That's basically what All right. So, so we're going to submit it to a uh, data science conference and see what happens <laughs> spend 45 minutes chitting on data scientists that'll, your that'll point, go great but your point was right on the money and i think it's actually an interesting because when you so you had said because when you had said uh you were like well they need for their modeling to be accurate they need a, they're always wanting access to production data but like when you think about it that's like exactly like why i mean you could anonymize some bits of that data but but that's isn't that oh i see scott piper's on he's watching he said thank you thanks for mentioning for cloud sec i don't have add you do but anyways so, <laughs> you, but anyways so you you were just basically saying that like uh well i guess i guess what i was saying what i'm saying is when you when you brought that up the first thought was like maybe we have to shift as security like what we're allowing what we well like well, we're prepared to basically like do a better job of like just giving that data over, but like in a way that's still safe and sane. But like, I don't yeah. know. Yeah, I don't know what you're because you you guys brought up like several different cases, which was awesome. Were those, by the way? So those are real. Those are real scenarios you guys dealt with, and you changed the names. Yeah, yeah. I, I'd say my examples are based in one company, but kind of have different features of different companies I worked with. So it's not just yeah. like one specific company. So exactly, it's, it's all real scenarios. Yeah, they're all real yeah. scenarios. Um, and but you know, we we flavor it with some other stuff because, um, 
you know, we have limited time, but the idea is that you want that, uh, that, you know, large organization, that medium size a smaller or like, you know, partner, partner driven or, you know, bank, or, you know, we want those different components of finance in the, in the talk. Yeah. And one thing on the data scientist thing, I mean, I think all of us have kind of, we've worked with security people who are like, no, just, you know, they just say no to everything. And it's easier just to say no or something's a security risk and just not let it happen. Um, and I think data scientists, when it comes to the cloud, they so often become that um, like avenue for, for setting up their own AWS account or GCP account and just start like pulling data over there. And I've experienced this. Read S3 bucket. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, not, uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, they're like the cause of so much shadow IT. And I don't think, I mean, being empathetic to them, I don't think it's because, you know, you go into data science because you're a bad person and want to break the rules. Like, I don't think that's part of the personality trait. That's I think it's actually just, on the application. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How many felonies do you have? You have to have a minimum three. Do you hate data scientists? puppies and kittens, then this is the job for you. <laughs> Do you love Excel and hate puppies? This is, yeah. But uh, yeah, I think we just make their jobs so hard. Like when I've worked with data scientists, like it's impossible to get data into an environment they can use, or it's impossible for them to use an environment they can get the data in. And so, I mean, a lot of the job is just running Python models on data and they can't usually do that in, in some production accounts. So, Speaking of Scott, since he paid me to at least say his name three times, um, <laughs> he has a good article on <laughs> he has a good article on uh, segmented um, AWS networks. That's I think like moving to more of that model where you have dedicated accounts and, and networks for people to be able to do that type of work is pretty important. But I don't think a lot of folks have kind of moved that direction yet. Um, but I think we'll we'll kind of get there. And more people are all about data science and you know big data, and they think that. That'll help them make more money, so they're going to be more supportive of uh, data scientists. So I think we'll see more of that. But right now, I, I kind of feel for those folks trying to do that work. Um, yeah, because they're so limited. So, so when you say separate, do you mean like uh, like an, a different an AWS environment entirely from like like it's a separate thing altogether with I mean no shared connections or like what's the sort of ideal yeah way to manage that. Yeah, I mean, I think more and more people are moving to the like dedicated account model. So like some people are doing like micro accounts. It's kind of like microservices, but micro accounts, which seems crazy. But, you know, I think there's some balance between having these really fat accounts, which is like traditionally how things have been done, which replicates data centers, and then having much smaller and dedicated accounts. Um, I mean, I see more folks doing like BU dedicated accounts or app dedicated accounts. But um, there's, I think there's, you know, good reasons to have dedicated accounts for like one specific thing spin up like a poc project create a dedicated account run it for however long you need it and just burn it down at the end of it no like vpc peering or connections to on-prem or to other accounts um because they're they're basically free and they're like namespaces for all your work so you have that segmentation um and as long as you can automate the creation and the deletion like it's not it's not that much work for you automate the creation and deletion of like the, the account and all the, the account and all like the resources in the account and the guardrails you want to put in place. So like the entire AWS uh, environment, not not like an IAM account, like the entire AWS just like tear it down, build it build it up type deal. Yeah, yeah. Oh, interesting. Like some people have yeah, some people have like burner accounts where they'll keep it up for thirty days, 
and then at the end of that, just destroy it, and that just no longer exists. And Amazon doesn't like care about that, or uh, well, I'm saying Amazon. I mean, I'm sure it's like GCP and Azure is the same. I'd imagine. That is, yeah, not as far as I know. I mean, I, I think it's they're incrementing an account ID, but besides that, like I don't think it really affects them that much as long as you can tie everything back to you know your billing, which you can do with AWS organizations. So um, yeah, I think that's kind of the direction we're going, which will enable people to do more sort of risky things so they can do it in like a reduced blast radius uh, kind of environment. Yeah. That's interesting. And then in terms of like prod data, like do you like, what are your thoughts on what are for both of you? Like, what are your thoughts on, do they need prod data or do they need data that like mimics or like, do you anonymize certain things like email addresses and, and, you know, whatever else might be sensitive. Oh, like can go. Okay. Yeah. I mean, prod, so the, the prod data thing, I think that most of the time you don't need the prod data, right? That it, that you can not, like you said, anonymize it or whatever. Uh, sometimes organizations don't have a choice, but to use the prod data to run a, um, whatever, a, an accurate model because whatever their, their data anonymization process isn't mature enough or whatever it may be. And I think important that, we recognize that as a decision that we may not be necessarily able to make. So we can always talk to our blue in the face that you don't need prod data, you don't need prod data, you don't need prod data. But uh, you know, as Mike and I joke on the human aspect of it, a side of life advice by Ken is that you know if you're empathetic to that need, um, you can sort of try to figure out what guardrails you want to put in place and where the risk comes in and all that. But ideally, obviously, you don't want to use the prod data if you can't, but there might be a scenario where you need to, you know, run a model and you don't have the the process in place and you're up against a deadline or whatever it may be. So you have to operate within those parameters. Yeah. It made I, me think I, a I lot mean, about, yeah. I don't know. I, like I, I start coming at it from a, like a, the data scientist perspective, just like what Mike was saying about, you know, you fill for those guys because it like, they're trying to answer specifically business style questions. And I know, especially when you get into finance or financial data, that the second you start mucking about with um, even something as simple as like social security numbers and changing those values, that it takes away the value of that data from the data scientist perspective, right? Like it's, yes, it still may be representative of a social security number, but it doesn't have the same intrinsic values built into it, right? Um, it doesn't have the same character codes. It doesn't tell us like when people were born, like there's other things that you can extract from it, that the second that you start to suck some of that out, it becomes less interesting and you may not be able to answer the questions that the business wants to pose at that point, right? Yeah, I think yeah. we also need to sort of be cognizant of what we mean by prod data. Like it's yeah, it's it's production data that we can use to model information that we're maybe getting permission for or whatever it may be, and then data in production that is different. So you you know we're talking about anonymization and the value of the data itself, where uh, you you're probably not running those models in you know your the same environment that you're applications run in. You're taking that data, making a copy of it, ensuring that you have all the privacy constraints around that, that you're protecting it effectively, and then running your models on that data. And then it's, do we give data scientists access to that? Is that appropriate for what they're trying to do? Yeah. 
Yep. And yeah. and I always go back to the fact that like we can, I mean, as security people, right? Like we have the tools to to secure things, right? And, and so a lot of times this whole like gut reaction that security has of hey, we're just going to say no is more for hey, I don't want to think through a hard problem than it is uh, hey, can we actually do this in a secure manner, right? Um, and that may just be inexperience or or other things. Ken, what are you laughing about? No, I was I was just joking. We call it edge cases, not not uh, hard problems. Edge cases. <laughs> edge cases. <laughs> oh, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if it was for everybody else, but your mic went out, so it was just this. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, no. It's like non-trivial edge cases is the hip way to say it. Non-trivial cases. To shit is hard. Hard, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Doing your job, yeah. 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 Yep. Making me think. Yeah, I mean, you guys, because like, <clears throat> yeah, that's I, I, I just made me think a lot. Like, we're kind of like it, it. At least brought up a question of is security actually a problem in some cases, right? Like, uh, in the sense that yes, we want obviously everybody knows we want to keep things secure, but like. <clears throat> Are we out of sheer like that? Like you said, exactly what you said. Is it just a thing if it's so difficult and there might be like risk? So no, you know, does that make sense? Probably not, man. Like, like this is the way the world's working. Like you need to adapt and, you know, we get paid if the company's doing well and if the company's leading an initiative like this, then, and at the same time, it sucks when you get breached. So it's like, yeah. there's a balance, yeah. but. Right. I mean, one thing you brought up too, Kent, uh, was like you. <clears throat> one, th one thing I was trying to understand um, was when you were talking about. So you were talking about basically compliance driving, um, uh, like specifications, and one of the things being like, okay, you have these compliance things which can be easily automated if you're a startup who can just adopt all this. DevOps stuff, and you're just like good to go. You got the technologies, you've got automation with like code as infrastructure, all the configurations are set, boom, you're good. And then you're a company who has stuff that is still running from 20 or 30 years ago. You talked about COBOL, I think, at one point. And like there are th there are definitely companies who their systems are wholly reliant upon uh that, like those systems. And so you had mentioned you know, there are things that you can possibly do to try and harden those environments, but they're not going to be automated security patch, you know, easily spun up, spun down type things. And um, you just, you, you kind of, I, I was trying to figure out like, because one of the things you mentioned was like, maybe you could um, put some perimeter protections in place, but I really wasn't sure what all can be done. Cause I, I've ne uh, full disclosure, I've never tried to secure Cobalt mainframes, so I have no idea what goes into that. <laughs> yeah, have you even really lived. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> um, the, I think my, I think if I'm remembering what you're talking about, right, it's that uh, it's and I bring up Yeah, um, <laughs> that's right. Um, Lisa's doing a great job over there. Lisa's lending. Um, so what I was saying is that there are companies that have been around for so long, and you have these pockets of modernization. But the company is built on some historical, whatever, system, mainframe that has constraints that may not be easily automated. One of the examples I used was um, 
a mainframe and the password limit on mainframes. And if that's used as sort of like the, you know, your, your directory or where all your users come from, that you have to add these other layers of security in order to continue to maintain, maintain that because your path to modernization for something like that is so long that there's an interim period where you're going to have to have this dual environment that you're that is not in any you know DevSecOps blog where it's like, well, I've got a mainframe and I'm running you know EKS on AWS and I've got these containerized applications and somewhere in there, uh, the user that's logging into that mainframe is also logging into that uh, into that you know container or web application or internal application. So how do you approach that as a problem? And it's not going to be all of the best practices that we have around existing modern applications. So yeah, I mean, that's that, and that's exactly the, the problem that we face in larger enterprises because, you know, everybody wants to take on the benefits of things like containerization or, or cloud and explore it as a, as a solution for all or, or at least some of their workloads. Um, and, that's, and that's a challenge that is not well documented right now. Yeah, and not one I think a lot of people have to. Well, I don't know, Seth. Do you do you think it's common, Mike? Do you think it's common? I honestly don't know. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, can you remember you still work at that like AppSec, you know, modern know, world, yeah, right? Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. so <laughs> you know, I'm giving you shit about that, but it's yeah. like I I run into like even you know organizations that I've talked to in the last couple of weeks that are you know something very similar to that right like their back end is this mainframe authentication system that they built out 15 to 20 years ago and they may be able to sp support more than eight character passwords but you know anything else is just a you know as they try to move into the cloud world it's just not a sustainable you know IDP right in this case um, for everybody that's trying to authenticate against it. And so they're having huge issues trying to make that move. And I think that's pretty standard, right? Any organization that's been around for longer than 15 to 20 years has legacy systems in place. They do, right? right? It could be, yeah. I mean, when I worked at the bank, uh, you know, years and years ago, um, it was always the problem that, hey, there's some little old lady who's worked at the bank for 50 years who does some critical business process and she retires and all of a sudden, like, we're not billing $50 million across the, like all of these different loans or we're, like our revenue just went down because we never automated what this little old lady did on a weekly basis. Right. Right. And so, I mean, that you was more Mike's about, on the podcast. He can hear you. Yeah, oh, sorry. Mike. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that lady also wrote an assembly and that program yeah. is still in use today. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's assembly. And, you know, they, you know, they had some COBOL interpreter that like, is a say, you know, yeah, but that's just it, right? Like I, any any organization is going to be fighting these battles um, and no organization is gonna invest on a yearly basis to upgrade to the latest and greatest on those core systems. They're just not. Right. Yeah. And I don't so, think it's even realistic for some for some places. Like I've worked in places that are all in on cloud for their applications, but they're the mainframes are never going away. It costs way more to try to redo all of that stuff than it is just to they hand it off to like an IBM to manage for them, um, but they're just not, they're not trying to get rid of it. Um, what do they do with those? Of, like, how do they connect the two? Do they just do like a VPN between the two environments to talk or communicate, or is it completely isolated? And like, I have no idea how any of that works. Um, 
usually there's some kind of connectivity, but it also depends. I've seen some horrible projects where it mostly it's like batch files. So just sending over a huge file for like a mainframe to work on or to be uploaded or transformed into some other format and then run through a job. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's but it's really common XML. to have to have well, Wait, no, it is. XML. It's uh, a, <laughs> XML if you're lucky, right? CSV yeah. and yeah. Hey, XML. calm down with yeah. these new standards. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I love I love that Ken is like, yeah, XML is so old school, man. Yeah, um, but but it's true. Like, you sort of like the same way that you would have uh, modernized older applications. It's like start with the front end and get it to um, get it to receive calls and then send those calls in the format that is accepted by this legacy system. So if that's XML, then there are some cases where like. Uh, JSON is converted to XML until everything is natively in JSON. So there's like this path, there, you know, this um, this middleware application that does all that translation. No, I, I mean you're absolutely right. You know, it, I keep going back to the time of the bank because they, I mean, that's a very specific like use case. Financials are all in on mainframes and they still use them. I mean, IBM still updates the, the ZOS or whatever it is on a you know yearly basis. But one of the things they did when they implemented like uh, online banking is they had written basically a, uh, they called it a like a TN 3270 uh, proxy, right? It would take everything that was coming from the web application, translate it to uh, your typical kind of green screen application on the mainframe to actually interact and pull values back and forth, right? And, and that, that, that middleware layer is where everything happens. And that's what's crufty as hell too, right? And most of the time yeah. when a bank goes down for an extended period of time, it's because of that like that middleware layer because it's it's all custom to the bank. It's not it's not necessarily something that IBM's written or is really supported. It's it's very custom. So yeah. I remember at one point Schwab, you could enter like a 16 character password. But when you actually went to log in, you can only type in eight characters of your 16 character password <laughs> and you still logged in. So I remember mistyping it one time and I was like, Wait, this, shouldn't, this should not have worked. That's, but, that, mainframe, yeah. that's that mainframe password, man. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So yeah, that's, that's rough. I mean, I did, you know, I've always been interested in uh, like, so let me put it, I don't XML. know much. You always wanted to know what XML was. <laughs> XML was I always wanted to know. I was wondering. Uh, I don't know how to say Da six six seven on Twitter um, has a mainframe course. I've always considered doing that. I don't know if you've ever heard anything good or bad about the course, but it sounds pretty pretty interesting. Here you get a free I, I, ARP I, I card. I love how we yeah. I love how we went from hey, we're going to talk about cloud to. Okay, oh, let's, yeah, sorry. Let's, yeah, yeah. let's discuss the let's nuance it back between. But you know what, though? Yeah, yeah. I love that, though, because is, though, is that their talk was super practical about real-world scenarios, and this is real-world. Yeah, is. and that's the, that's the problem. I mean, I think that in talking about cloud, you know, we have a tendency to ignore all of the real problems that we're facing. It's so easy to talk about, like what the latest and greatest is and we attach ourselves to that and it's cool and it's easy as security practitioners to laugh at, I entered my 16 character password, it only took eight, ha ha ha. But you're like, well, there, no one is solving that problem. And that's what we're here to do. And yeah. we're not doing it. You're not doing it. You know, yeah, I'm not doing it. It's <laughs> like, I'm doing it, I did it, I did it, solved the problem. Well, I solved my problem. I just took all my money out of the bank and put it underneath my mattress. And... 
<laughs> Take that online. No. <laughs> yeah. Crap. Now everybody knows. <laughs> What's your address, Mike? What's yeah. your risk? What's your risk is it, profile? Well, before we get into that, is it twin, king, queen? You know, what are we talking <laughs> People here? People want to know. How much money um, is in this thing? I move it to different different rooms. You know, you'll never I'm much. sure it's amphipedic. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Those oh, frail yeah. bones. Got to keep them. <laughs> As the grandma, yes. As the grandma of the group. Yeah. Just came, just brought you on to insult you. Just didn't know if you knew that. <laughs> I knew. I figured, yeah. <laughs> For those that don't know, Mike and I are like really good friends. We all are good friends, so. We can do that. We can talk. We can be like this. Yeah. So yeah, like uh, going back to it, I think, yeah, there's a whole bunch of different scenarios that I think that's what I liked most about your talk was just that you, just the practice, the sheer practicality of it. And cause there's, you guys talked about, or I think it was Mike, you mentioned, you don't really, when you go to a conference, you're more about, and I'm the same way. I think we all are probably at this point. Um, it's, it's easy to just like kind of watch hallway con and that's to me, a lot of the talks from most normal conferences, the, the, uh, there's your exceptions, Locomoco sec, Seth, you should check into it. Anyways, there are your exceptions. It doesn't but, exist. Um, <laughs> doesn't exist. Well, this year it doesn't. Sad panda. Prove, yeah, but yeah, that. like, uh, it's just, <clears throat> I like the talks that are practical to, to like what, yeah, well, what what I because like I even deal with it. Like for instance, when you guys were talking about provisioning up and down accounts, like the first thing that came to my mind was like, well, there's a lot of organizations such as ours that use a third party SSO, like whether it's Octo or it's something else. So then I, you know, it's like, can you pretty easily? I actually don't know the answer because I don't do SecOps, but I don't know like, is it easily to is it easily like even that might pre pre present a challenge, right? Like easily spinning up a SSO with a new AWS environment just for your data scientists. And then they can use single sign on, which is better than like, you know, writing it down a password on a, a post-it note, you know, having centralized SSO for every service you use. Like even those things are just, it's just a crazy amount of challenges that come along with it. Everybody thinks yeah, like, yeah. oh, it's AWS, just secure your AWS stuff. But it's like so much more, is what's great about your talk so yeah man yeah. I, one of the 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 piece about the sso and uh, like mike was talking about the accounts um is that the the accounts that you're creating that you're spinning up and down and destroying or using as i guess uh, uh atomic accounts or something i guess you could call it um are uh can be access through those STS roles. So you don't actually need to have more than the root user there. You can send your data scientists over through, you know, your parent account that has all your SSO and, you know, you can handle all that through IAM. Um, so, I, you know, you don't necessarily have to spin up an, an SSO or a third party for every account that you're using. You can use that parent account as your authorization structure for, you know, whatever else you're, whatever other account you're spinning up. What are some of the hardest yeah. challenge? What is, like for you, for for the two of you, what are some of the been in your career? And also for for those that don't know, like Ken, Ken and Mike have put themselves purposefully into positions and like different places that they've worked that are almost purposefully. I feel like they're challenging and difficult, but they're they, like you get specific expertise and knowledge from each one of those places. And you've done each of you has gone to like vastly different. Uh, environments and just to, I almost feel like just to get that sort of that experience um, 
and I, I would say over the last five or six years for the two of you, it's just been like a, a wide array of different environments that you've come across. But of all those environments, like what are, what are like one of the, the, the highlighted, like in your mind moments where these are just like, you had a hard challenge and you had to solve it. Um, and it just like made you think heavily about how you go about your, you know, about what you're doing. Yeah. Uh, aside uh, I mean, from I the from mainframes. Me. Well, well, yeah, you go. Aside from mainframes. Aside from mainframes. I was just going to say mainframes. No, I mean, <laughs> I, think, uh, I think what's changed for me and, um, you know, in the past I was doing more tactical work, doing apps like assessments, cloud assessment, things like that. Still do some of those things. But I think what changed for me in the past three to five years is not thinking about like the tactical, like how do we fix this bug or that kind of thing, but it's the strategic, like how do you fix a company-wide problem, um, and I think it's uh, I think it's interesting because when I when I think of cloud issues, I don't think of it as like a technical issue. Most often, mostly the technical issues can be solved with smart people. It's usually an organizational problem or like a historical process problem. And so, how do you fix? How do you work back to kind of like zero and fix those issues? I think that's more interesting um, these days than like the specific technical issues. I still like the technical side of it, but when it comes to cloud, like everything scales so fast, you're gonna, if you have a problem in one area, it's gonna scale up and affect everything. You know, think about like an EC2 provisioning process. If that's incorrect, you're gonna have thousands of EC2s that are incorrectly provisioned or cloud formation, anything like that. So I think it's solving problems at a, a big scale, I think is the most interesting and most challenging um, kind of thing these days versus like how do you solve one individual problem. Um, but yeah, I think it goes back to organization and culture. Um, and also a lot of it is taking ownership of a problem. People seem to not want to do that. And when it comes to cloud, it's more than just an app team being responsible for something, but it's so many other teams involved in whatever that process is. So getting that buy-in from different people to fix an issue. Yeah. This is where Uh, spreadsheets come in handy. Yeah. Speaking (laughs) of spreadsheets. You can can just spreadsheet spreadsheet culture. That's that's what yeah. you're saying. Yeah, exactly. spreadsheet. Yeah, I like that spreadsheet culture. No, I mean I, I agree with all of what you said, especially just like tackling larger strategic problems or like the implementation of it, uh, rather than what's the biggest weakness today. The one that I always butt up against that I think that I have the hardest time solving, and I don't know that I have a perfect answer for this even today, is um, asset inventory, application inventory is like the problem that plagues us. And I think it, it's like supposed to get easier. And I we talk about this in the talk, like if you have a good tagging strategy in AWS or whatever it might be, or you know, inside of your orchestration layer. But God, like inventory is so hard and no one wants to solve that problem. And it makes it almost, um, I mean, it makes it so difficult for us to appropriately prioritize issues, especially on that larger scale. So that's that's like where I get hung up probably the most often in organizations is like, what's your application inventory? And nine times out of 10, people are like, we don't know. Or like, yeah, here's, here's what we have, but it's not complete. Yeah. yeah I, like, I don't know. I, who is it? It's, I mean, HD has got some new, you know, b- product that he's releasing, but that's more of like asset strict, like network device inventory as well. And I think right. this is the this is, this is specific to like application security, even cloud security. When you're talking about it, it's a little easier to enumerate what you've got in um, AWS accounts 
right? Or like cloud accounts when you know those accounts exist and somebody's paying for that bill. Um, but even then, the stuff that's actually running on top of those EC2 instances, anytime that we start talking about applications and what's, what, is, what is out there, I mean, that we see this in bug bounties all the time, right? I mean, Ken, I'm sure you do as well. If people find new applications that some developers stood up, some data science scientist stood up somewhere to you know perform a function and then didn't get secured properly, didn't use the happy path or the guardrails that you put into place, and all of a sudden you're paying a bug bounty researcher, you know, a couple grand or whatever because of the the vulnerabilities that exist in there. And yeah. like I don't know, I don't know how to solve that problem though from an app inventory perspective because it it's not a technical issue; it's a process issue, right? Right. For and us, the one way we oh sorry, go ahead. No, you go ahead. You do it. My voice All is right. tired. <laughs> Your voice is tired. Yeah. Well, Ken, so one Ken's way now you know, hosting. I don't know which one. Which Ken? Doesn't matter. Both. Doesn't yeah. matter. Both. Yeah. What, Doesn't matter. One in the black shirt. Yep. The one in the dark shirt. Uh, yes. Yeah, so, uh, what was I saying? Oh, yeah. No. So uh, for us, you have to actually submit pull requests to um, get a DNS entry, right? Uh-huh. And we have a very, very small amount of people that can actually uh, push that out to prod. And uh, part of the process that's built in is to get a few different people to sign off on that. And one of them is AppSec, right? We need to know about the the new DNS entry. So that's um, not to say it's foolproof, uh, but I, I think since we started going that route, I don't know that I've seen anything pop up that we, we haven't seen before. But we had prior to that very like specific process. Absolutely. We, I can think of at least two situations where we had somebody report something and we're like, the heck is that? You know? Yeah. So it is a process. It is a process thing. I think. Is that like internal as well for your, you know, uh, internal domains and things of that nature? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you want an entry, you gotta go, you gotta do it. You gotta go through the process. And that's like, that's a, that's a path. And I, I think that to tackle that, it's like, we need to sort of get out of our own way a little bit and stop treating it. Like you said, Seth, as a, it's not, it's not a security problem. And so, you know, we don't necessarily own it. We can contribute to it and it's going to help everybody. So what confuses me about asset inventory is that I think the reason that we don't approach it is that it's just a, a ton of work and nobody wants to do it. It's not fun but it would benefit everyone. So if you can get some buy-in to that, like that would go a long way in helping everybody. Um, but yeah, I just, I butt up against that all the time. The DNS thing as an approval process that you go through, I don't know what that looked like from a start to finish implementing, but it'd be interesting to see like how long that took and how, uh, how the implementation of that process or the design of that process went. Yeah, I think yeah. it's 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 because because we can just pull in code that then is a configuration that then sets an entry. It's 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 really it's because we've got somebody on duty at Monday through Friday every day, right? So like, whoever's on duty, if you see a ping, you just basically look at it and you're like, hey, uh, yeah, we've heard about this. We have an AppSec review open, or there's a security review open, or whatever. Like, there's something open that we somebody knows about this, right? And uh, you can just look, it just takes no time at all, really. You just look, you're like, okay, uh, look, do we have an open review? Okay, this person's working on it, cool. Like we know about it. Maybe I'll hit them up if I'm not sure about the status, if it's like not finished. But yeah, most of the time, um, it's a very quick process. Doesn't It's not cumbersome. And that's the most important thing because I think one of you said, get out of 
security has to kind of get out of the way a little bit. And yeah, that's, I agree. Uh, we just have to kind of like, if we're not prompt, then who's going to want to go through us? It's going to take forever. Right. Yeah. I think every security person when they start at a company should have to go through like the app deployment process. So it's yes. kind of like undercover boss where they, they, they do the job and learn how hard and horrible it is. Cause you probably create so much more empathy and want to change processes. Like if you had the CISO go through each step to actually get an app deployed out, he'd be like, I'm not doing this. This is horrible. <laughs> I'll, I will find someone in the company who has admin credentials. I will zip up my code and they will dump it on an EC2 yeah, instance for me before I will go through this process. So, yeah, yeah it's, it's, yeah, and it's a reflection. What's that? No, no, we had that discussion with Dula, right? With Abdullah um, when he came on. Cause that was one thing that Appian made those guys do is like, you're not just a security guy. You're, you're, you're considered an engineer, right? So you've got to know what the engineering process looks like. So, I, I mean, I, right. I was just saying, I agree. Sorry, Ken, go ahead. Oh, actually, on that note, I did deploy when I first went. Uh, Neil, uh, Neil had uh, me. Uh, Neil reached out and was like, "Hey, do you want to deploy that?" Because back back when I started, you had to deploy to production to update documents. Yes, that idea. <laughs> so um, yeah, I deployed a couple times in the beginning, and uh, Neil helped out, and I actually really did. Like you said, it was like, "Wow, this is uh, this is really scary, and uh, it's not easy." And uh, yeah makes you think differently. Well, I mean, uh, to go back to the cloud, I, that's the whole reason why we get shadow IT stood up, right? Mm -hmm. You know, think about uh, the, you know, the data scientists, the financial guys, they're trying to figure out, figure out something and they need to turn it around before the end of the quarter. Okay. We can build through our internal dev team and it's going to take six months to stand it up. Or we just go register this account on a card over here. Uh, we dump some data in there. We run the report, and then we forget about it, and we're hosting like financial data in an open S3 bucket. But I, I mean, that's the reason that it happens. And we saw that again. We saw that at the bank, and I see that in organizations all the time. Is hey, we're just going to go out and buy a server. And I'm going to pop it under somebody's desk, right? A computer. We're going to throw Linux on it. And we're going to deploy this application because it's just used by our team, so it's fine, right? That's and that's how it usually starts. Should there be punitive ramifications from an HR perspective if you do that? I, I mean, if the company asking you to run that, I, I mean, to build that because they are, it's usually usually there's some approval there from somebody's boss or somebody's boss's boss that says, "I need to, I need this done. Go figure out how to do it." And I don't care if you go by, you know, you go around the system. Well, right. remember, punitive doesn't mean just the person that spun up. That means the leadership that allowed for it. This is why leadership should go down if they're allowing toxic behavior, such as what we saw at Pay or sorry, eBay. I almost said the wrong company. eBay, eBay security team we talked about last week was harassing customers, and that ultimately starts when you talk about toxic behavior, when you talk about circumventing controls, whether they be security or whatever. That is number one, it's leadership. Leadership has to has to be accountable, number one. So somebody is still accountable just because it's like the somebody, like an executive approved it. Somebody's still accountable. So should yeah. that person and that team receive punitive, you know, re repercussions via HR? That's my question to you all. <laughs> I think if it was I think it was just purely blatant and they had other options, then probably. Um, and I think honestly, if, if 
an executive uh, was responsible for S, like an S3 bucket being public with real data in it, it might not be an HR action, but it would definitely like, you know, executives get judged on their competence. It would affect them in their career and they, they think they would know that. Their problem is they generally don't know these kind of things because then they probably would say no to it. And so it's just developers doing things on their own. So, yeah, I mean, I think it should be in line with your with your culture, like some cultures encourage, you know, experimental behavior to that degree. And, you know, if you're going down that path, it needs to be in line with it. Now, if you're inside of a bank with a lot of these security controls and security measures, and then you're spinning up, you know, some uh, experimental Linux server under your desk, or, you know, running a private chat server on a, what is that thing, the pirate box or whatever, you know, um, it's, you know, it's like you have, it's going to be a big, a much bigger problem. And, you know, you might get fired for that, some, something like that. But if you're in a looser organization that is encouraging experimental behavior where the security posture is maybe not as, um, or not the posture, but the, the security risk isn't as high, or maybe you're not handling financial data, then that thing might be just overlooked. So I think it is very dependent on the, on the type of organization. But in any of them, like one of my mantras is like security needs to eat their own dog food. And so... Um, when I go into organizations, if I'm leading any security organization, my goal is to remove as much access from myself as possible and to make sure that like I'm acting in the same way, you know, and that folks that are on the security team are uh, provided with the access that they need. And if they're performing the job duty and I'm not, there's no reason that if like if I'm a manager of a security team that I need access to everything. And I think that we too often get into this uh, mindset that security should have access to everything. And that sets a precedent for the reputation for security that they just want access to everything and they need administrative access to this or that. When in reality, you know, we need to think about what we need access to as well and how we approach those situations. Because if we're able to say, look, I don't even have access to this, you know, tell me, give me your business case or tell me why you need to have this, you know, rogue server running because, you know, I'm trying to follow my own my own rules here. So you you need to follow them as well. My favorite story about a rogue server, if I can have one minute, was someone did that. They put a Linux box, actually I think it was an old like Windows box on top of their desktop to host a LAMP server. And they wrote custom code to host the the like photos or something like that. And one day we came in and they were like freaking out because like, oh we got hacked and we're like, wait, is this on the internet? And they're like, no, it just sits on my desktop. And it turned out that Nessus had run its like weekly scan and hit the delete.php and they didn't have like, the, it ran it ran um like directory traversal payloads and just deleted the entire OS. It was hey, that's it was amazing. That was yeah. For those listening that don't know what LAMP is, it's what? Linux, <laughs> Apache, MySQL, PHP. That's the stack. Yeah. 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 What's running? Is that on your on your like, you know, Legacy technology scale, Ken, is that like above yeah. or below XML? XML. Man, so that was outdated and we were hacking in it, on it at CCDC back in like 2009. So that was like, <laughs> like that was the LAMP stack was like the old vulnerable stuff. So yeah. if you're still running uh, LAMP, like good for you. You know, the other thing that comes to runs the world that, that comes PHP. to mind in that like rogue behavior thing is, uh, 
like the security pranks, you know, for security awareness or operational security and like the way different companies perceive things like, oh, you left your computer unlocked. I'm going to go, you know, write a script and it's going to do something crazy to you. Like in some organizations, that's like, ah, oh, you got me or whatever. And it's like a really nice cultural, you know, way to way raise security awareness. And in others, people would like freak out. So I think you have to be, you know, you have to like have a little bit of a, a plug into the culture of the organization. Yeah. Mm. So it's contextual and uh, it depends. It's kind of what you're saying. It really, yeah. The, like, yeah. But well, with real examples, I, Ken, it depends why can't you on real just examples. Have examples. Polarizing. Yeah. Hard left, hard right. That's how we do things nowadays. You just got to take a stance and dig in. No, no. <laughs> well, I mean, I think, isn't that part of like socks now, though, as well? Is that like, I mean, you talk about exposure and specifically to the cloud, right? Mm. If if a, an executive is negligent in setting up the policy and the company culture to prevent exposure or breaches, they can be held personally liable for that, right? Yep. That's the, I mean, from a financial perspective, like that, that is what SOX is about, is you know, you're helping run and run an organization so if you are negligent and putting those controls in place, then you're the one that can be held accountable to it. And you can be civilly sued because you were not, you know, doing what you should have been done. And I feel like that translates to some of these controls, especially in those SOC styles organizations. But that's not necessarily, I mean, SOCs is a different thing from some of the other compliance regs that are out there. If you're a startup, Guess what? It's probably not as intense, and you probably aren't going to be worried about that. Um, Talking about Sorbane's Oxley, whatever. When you say socks. yeah, that's what's that's socks. Yeah, Sorbane's Oxley. Yeah, that's the financial reporting. The fact that anything that touches basically financial data has to be tried and true and protected. Right? It's the classiest sounding regulation. Classiest one. That's why we use it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But I, but I think that's where, where like, that's kind of that line that I see from should be should someone be held personally personally liable is, hey, what is it like? What is the company that you're representing? And, and, and that goes back to what Ken and you know Mike were saying about it depends on the organization. So. I say burn them. No, I'm kidding. Burn, 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 them. <laughs> burn them, burn them all down. So. Yeah, that's right. Well, what's think, next for your uh, for the talk then? Like, it, I mean, I I know you guys did it for OWASP Nova or whatever a couple nights ago, right? Um, it, you have new iterations. You do a new research on it. What's what's next? Yeah, I mean, we yeah. talked about a couple of different things. I think we might do not necessarily version two, but it's been about a year since we created it, so we might just kind of burn it down and restart. Probably take some of the same content, but do kind of another just version of it, but it's whatever we've learned over the past year, just added to that. I think the other thing we really want to do is a training based on it, but that's if we're not too busy. Yeah, that'd be awesome. I do mean, you guys get useful feedback on your talk that like shapes sort of your perception? And has anyone been like, hey, this actually is basically what I'm going through now? One person told me to shit on... Uh, uh, data scientists more. That was pretty good <laughs> feedback, but that's yeah. <laughs> um, the yeah the I think that we add the 
the that's why the organizations are like not representative of a single one so that we can sort of pull these different components that fit you know one of the different i guess uh, organization categories or types we can sort of pull from what we're learning now uh the other part was to to just iterate on the technical aspect of it and i think that part of the reason that um, it's hard to sort of approach the talk is that there's a lot of content. And so what I want to do is take some of those practical examples that are towards the tail end of the talk that talk about, you know, that where you can start and where you can go and what it would look like and, and sort of tease those out a little bit. One of those was in uh, Rails Goat, obviously, is like trying to take something and make it more enterprise so that we can run something like a vulnerable application through you know, a CICD pipeline in these different uh, categories of, of maturity or these different levels of maturity inside of an organization. So if this vulnerable application was just launched and, there's, and we're doing all this manually, it might just be like that initial deployment that you're doing in your local local machine. And if it's automated and managed or something, then you know we can look at that OpenShift example as how you would handle something as vulnerable as this in an enterprise type of deal. Oh, I didn't realize because you made it. Yeah, you you had made some pull request changes to uh, to Rails go to, uh, with OpenShift. I didn't I didn't really catch the the reasoning behind it. You might have mentioned it, and I apologize if I forgot. But I don't no, think you I'll did. Then. I think no, it was I, just, I don't. I think I was just because for me it was just trying to get it so that it would work in like the real world because that's the goal, right? Is that I want to be able to at the end of that talk say, here, go try this example, and here's some different phases that you can work through. Um, and to provide that real world scenario. And what I want to get away from is these technical demos that are like only applicable within the technical demo. So mm -hmm. I want to make sure that whatever we're building can be applicable to somebody that is working inside of whatever is being demonstrated, that they could take that as a snippet and then build on that inside of their, you know, corporate environment. On a side note, between you and Justin Collins uh, submitting pull request, I've actually thought about updating Rails Goat to uh, like a more modern, better, like more realistic, less obviously vulnerable application. But uh, we should talk about that offline some more for sure. <laughs> no, I, yeah, I, I, yeah, I wait, like that. Wait, wait, wait. Oh, yeah. it's Ruby, where are you? It's real. That's insecure by default. How many notifications have I gotten in the past like three weeks? Yeah, well, one was uh, about last week. One was because of Greg, my boss, and uh, uh, I'm always going to refer to him as my boss just because it makes him cringe. So, Greg, my boss, and <laughs> Matt, I'm going to say this differently because I actually looked it up. It's a French pronunciation, it's Longloy. I think is how you say it, but he's like Fletch two ninety nine on Twitter, I believe. Um, anyways, like yeah, they they that was the uh, that was the one we talked about where it was like for um, host only and secure prefixes on cookies where they were like decoding it at the server level when it was received. It was you were all decoded the keys were con causing confusion, and then the the other one was uh, was there a uh, XSS or what? What was the the other one that came out? The, I have to look. The it up. DB migrations one was really interesting. <laughs> That one, yeah, man. I was looking at. I told you I was looking at that, and like, it I, honestly, unless I read the patch wrong, it still looked like if you passed the the right header, that it would still do the same thing. And 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 active, active. What was it? Active error or or something like that, where it would just yeah. it would see an error that, it, and it would it would like try to correct the error if it was a, a migration that had been run 
And so it would just like kick off a mi the migration to actually catch everything up and get the da database in sync with where it needs to be. But it looked like if you pass the request header, it still would work. So I was a little confused on the patch when we were going when I was looking through it. Yeah. Anyways, that's so Rails, giving attackers access yeah. to run DB migrations. Yeah, that's a T-shirt. And for, and for so Neil, for Neil <laughs> that's out so there, Rails. For Neil out there, please don't quote me in your next Rails security talk. Okay, I like Rails. <laughs> I actually, dude, I was actually getting annoyed recently because. I, I, so full disclosure, I think it was, uh, it was either John Poulin or, uh, it might've been Jason, uh, white who I'd said this to at work. I was like, you know what? Honestly, I'm frankly sick of, of reviewing Ruby code. I just am. It takes too much. Too much is abstracted. It's too much. There's too much. It's like, it's, it's like, so it's, it's so obnoxious. You take something like Golang, it's so easy to follow. And I know I'm known as the Rubyist, but honestly, I'd rather review something like Golang any day over Ruby. So. Oh man, what's today? So Friday, June. What is? Hey, today? I've been saying this for a long time. I've been saying this for a while. It's privately. Now I'm saying it publicly. Yeah. Now, it, now it, people are going to quote this in conference talks, <laughs> virtual yes. and in real life. Man, look, yeah, look, man, look, look what happens Ruby after you. Yeah. You're like, look, even CK Tricky doesn't like Rails like anymore. anymore. <laughs> I know everybody thinks I'm married to it. I'm like, no. Listen, here's the deal. It's complicated. <laughs> Someone please page DHH, get him involved. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's, but yeah. I, anyways, I'm with you. Rails, Rails has become um, very difficult to, uh, to sort of keep. I mean, not, not from a, like, I'm not talking about like just the security aspect. I'm, I'm serious. Like it, it is, it's great in a lot of ways. It has its benefits, but man, is it, is it difficult as a, I mean, Seth, of all the, the languages we walk through when we do a secure code, that secure code review course, I have to say, Rails and Ruby is like the worst, just for like well, yeah, the rabbit just holes to track down. down. Yep, yep. It, I mean, it's the meta programming that it that it does um, because everything becomes so complex and it's built at compile time that it's extremely powerful, but it's also hard to know what's actually going to happen without the interpreter, without the console, and everything else that you can that you can you can use, but it still makes it very difficult to identify security vulnerabilities. It does from a code review perspective. So right. even node got better at, at the way they were doing things to eliminate callback hells and, and do more like await and like syncing requests to make sure that it was, you know, you don't have something execute before the next thing, since it's not a line by line execution. And they got better about like promises. And honestly, I feel like node listened to the community and improved, even though like, I know the creator, kind of shit on node but whatever like it, it i i think i think node is even easier than ruby at this point to to and rails to uh which are two different things but yeah oh man this is live there's so much happening right now kid <laughs> <laughs> doesn't know what to say i know exactly what to say because all these thoughts have been going on man like we could we could go another oh the other ken sorry other ken is doesn't know what to say yeah yeah, yeah. sorry yeah. anyways we should bring it back in to you guys. <laughs> so we've covered we've covered mainframes, we've you... covered spreadsheets, we've covered Rails being Rails. terrible. What I else in we... cloud security? What else in cloud security do we need to cover? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> no, no, I'm going to ask you guys a very opinionated question. Out of the three main services, Azure, AWS, and GCP, which would you recommend, and why? It depends. Again, it depends. Boo. No, Boo. no, polarize people. <laughs> Stop being so damn reasonable. 
no, no, uh, okay. dig, digital ocean no which one do you you which one do you turn turn to first yes, for yourselves uh digital you ocean to abuse to abuse internet scanning and aws for anything i actually need to use <laughs> there we yeah. go i'm uh you know i turn to aws but only because most that's been most of the history so i know it i guess the best out of the out of the three, four, five that they're that we use, um, but ad, I really like uh, Microsoft and Azure's approach to security and learning and learning that. Um, and for experimentation, like the subscription model, or sorry, the resource group model of like being able to just blow things away and like spin them back up and go through that. The way that they're sort of advertising the shared responsibility piece, like we talked about the, in the talk. And I just added it to the OWASP Nova talk about like how the shared responsibility model is like really sort of um, tough to navigate with um, when you're talking to other business units because they have this like SaaS, IaaS, PaaS uh, implementation like, oh, you don't have to worry about any of these things because you're in a SaaS model. And then Microsoft is sort of looking at it like, well, there's still in a, in a SaaS, there's still components of like networking that you need to configure or whatever it might be. And I think that we need to get to that point when we're explaining the shared responsibility model from a security perspective. And they're really taking that in and their security services, compliance services are much easier to navigate than AWS. And the AWS relies on like third party or we're like trying to create config rules or do whatever. Um, so I, I'm, I'm sort of starting to get more into Azure on the security side. And I, there's a lot to like unpack there and the differences, but you know, yeah, we have a I we think, have a guy on our team who who knows a lot about Azure. and He's been trying to like trying to teach some of us, and it, it is there. It, there is so much to uncover. I mean, on both a even AWS has changed in the last few years drastically from when I was every day using it in product like production services. It's crazy. Like th these this whole these platforms have grown so much. It's like unless if you're not, I feel like if you're not doing it. Frequently, it's very easy to get out of sync with what's available, and and yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. I can't remember who it was that I. It was either a talk I watched or something, but they broke it down. I think it might have been the um, Cloud Skills FM podcast, and they were saying like how you know if if I was going to go get certified in a cloud or if I was going to go like try to learn how would I approach it, and he said you know focus on like these three pillars the. Um, the compute, the networking, and the data side of each of the clouds and like learn that first. And then sort of all the nuance between those, as long as you can learn those three components of how it approaches it, everything else is built onto those three pillars. So looking at it in that lens, that's sort of how I'm approaching learning these other clouds. Hmm. Very cool. That's a, yeah, that, that's a good recommendation, right? Like just from a strict, hey, I, you know, I'm doing my first I'm spinning up my first instance in GCP or whatever, right? Like how to actually think about it because it, it is pretty overwhelming the first time that you look at any one of those consoles. Cause you're like, what the hell am I supposed to do here? Right? Like, right. It, it's not like going to digital ocean, right? Where it's like, yeah. Oh, all I do is click, click, click. And then there's a server for me. Right. You right. Know, there's yeah. more controls that are there, but I mean, AWS has always been bad at this. It's like a programmer's UI. Right. Yeah. It definitely is. Uh, you know, they just every option available is right there in front of you and you have no idea where to even go. 
to start. Right. I felt like yeah. I feel like Azure was more confusing for me than AWS, but maybe it's because I started off on AWS. And yeah, what's confusing is exactly definitely it. Google. Oh my oh, god, gee. GCP! <laughs> Holy shit, that is the least in- intuitive design I've ever seen of anything. Period. Yeah, but anyway, but like yeah. if you look at it, like, th- and I was in the same boat. So that that's sort of what I'm saying is when because I learned AWS first, I started I started learning Azure. Like, you know, how does how does a VPC look in Azure, right? Or how does like an what's an EC2 instance in Azure? Um, oh, you're whereas, framing it off that right. So that knowledge base. But if you take it as like compute networking data, you sort of are going okay. You know, AWS handles compute on a basic level with EC2 instances. You know, Azure handles it with you know VMs, and then as you get into those more abstracted services like Lambda, you start to understand how a Lambda interacts with the VPC, with EC2 install instance, all those kinds of uh, structures that make up AWS, and you approach it the same way with Azure, but in these three common categories. That helps me a lot. I don't know if it helps anybody else, <laughs> but it, it like helps me visualize you know what cloud I'm in. Pro yeah. tip from the better Ken. Yeah, <laughs> there we go. <laughs> we'll tweet that out. Well, guys, we've been going for a good like hour and 15 at this point. So uh, we don't want to take up your whole day. I mean, I, I, I know Mike's got spreadsheets to get back to. Uh, the table. Are, they're they're yes. going to solve themselves, right? I'm missing two meetings right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, missing Not two meetings. One. He's he's on a meeting. He's on a meeting doing this and missing two meetings. Yeah, one of his AirPods is going to that other meeting, and he's just you guys joke. <laughs> oh, we know, yeah. we know, Mike. But uh, we appreciate you coming on. Um, all your opinions, and it depends. That's that's always good. Uh, but I want to give you one last chance to just like let us know how people can contact you. Um, anything else that you want to talk about, um, Ken? If you want to go first, and then what, Mike? Sure. Yeah, you can reach me on uh, on Twitter at Rolotnik. It's my name backwards. If you haven't figured that out, um, also we're I'm launching a new podcast with a couple of other folks called Relating to DevSecOps, um, and that's going to be mostly around. We're going to have some uh, folks on that are from all these different organizations and whatever, but we want to focus on bringing developers on, bringing other organizations on, bringing project managers on to talk about security problems and. Uh, things like that. So we get perspectives from all of those different individuals um, and just have that, that conversation, maybe, you know, go at each other, debate a little bit, uh, have some laughs. So should be fun. We'll see how it goes. Um, should be launching the first episode either sometime this week or, or next week. Cool. When you do let us know, we'll post it. Yep. Cool. Yeah. yeah. We'll retweet for sure. And Mike, uh, you can reach me through my company, MBM consultants.co um, or at, on Twitter at McCabe615. It's the easiest Eat way. Macabre. Yep. <laughs> cool. Well, good. Um, yeah, well, hopefully one day soon we can get back to some scootering and whiskey. But until yeah. then, <laughs> oh my God, that was so you much guys. fun. <laughs> I appreciate you guys days. coming on. Yeah. The glory days. Yes. Uh, For a re- quick recap, the do- those that don't know, at DevSecOps days, we basically. Uh, we did not, I don't want shoot. God, are you allowed to drink in scooter? We'll just say we <laughs> didn't drink in scooter on a Uber <laughs> scooter or whatever scooters we were using out there, but that was so fun. Oh my God. <laughs> Again, not drinking in scootering. Seth didn't almost die or anything like that. <laughs> didn't almost die multiple not times. <laughs> it was a good time. Sweet. All right. 
Well, Thanks. good times, boys. Uh, we'll talk soon and catch us all online. Um, Ken and I will be on next week, uh, so join us for our 102nd episode. Um, I don't remember right now who we're going to have on, but what, Ken? Sorry. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah we're on next week. It's the following week after that that we're taking that a break. We'll, yeah, we'll take a break for the fourth. So. Oh, and we've got a bunch of guests coming up. I should mention that. we. So, uh, for instance, Justin Massey, speaking of GCP, who wrote uh, an article. It was actually mentioned in um, TLDR sec. Uh, Justin Massey from Datadog is coming on to talk about basically security monitoring. Uh, so that should be fun. Yeah. We've cool. got uh, Laura locked in for um, to, to kind of cover the whole, every, every, everything like from biases to diversity and tech, et cetera. So like I just saying, et cetera, cause it's going to be a very, uh, I hope for a good conversation and enlightening conversation. Um, and there's two other guests uh, we've got coming on, but until they're completely confirmed, I'm not going to mention them, but they're really good guests. So cool. Yep. Things are going along. Good lineup. So, all right. Well then we'll see everybody online. Catch everybody next week. Uh, feel free to reach out, find us on Slack or Twitter, but thanks for joining today. Yep. Thanks, thanks for, for having us. us. Bye. Bye. Bye.